This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today, tabloid turntable, maxed out and the end of an era. Rupert Murdoch and his family affair with tabloid newspapers has become front-page news as the wiretapping scandal that sunk the news of the world is catching the attention of law enforcement on both sides of the Atlantic. We'll talk with the New York Times reporter on the beat in London, Sarah Lyle. And then the godfather of Politico, the man whose reporting prowess and vision gave rise to the new gold standard in political reporting, John Harris, editor-in-chief of The Political, joins us. All that plus the end of an era, STS-135, back on terra firma, ending a program that has spanned more than four decades in space. But first, I'm joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, production chief in the Clinton administration. It's great to be with you, Josh. Great to be with you, Adam. This time, uh, as last in April, from London, England, merry old England, tally hoster, how are you? I am doing well, and uh, I must admit for our following, our listeners here on POTUS, that I'm coming to you from Miami, Florida, the M Network. Uh, Tom Mosloom, a friend of all of ours on this broadcast and on POTUS, is putting me up beachside here in Miami. Well, Adam, you know, last time I visited London, it was April. It was a beautiful spring week when I was here, and it coincided with the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. And I think I remarked at the time how London had never looked more resplendent and the news was never more cheery. A huge contrast to this week when, uh, when Rupert Murdoch, his son James Murdoch, Rebecca Brooks, the Metropolitan Police, Les Hinton, uh, Andrew Colson, even Prime Minister David Cameron, embroiled in scandal in the phone hacking affair. I, I seem to pick my weeks well because whenever the media gaze turns on London, England, I seem to be here. This is one of those stories, Josh, that has captured the attention of the entire world. I termed it tabloid turntable because literally they are now in the crosshairs of the very beast that they helped to create. Uh, in in stalking and finding the lurid details of so many stories. These are people, it would appear, who literally spared no expense and crossed every moral line in order to pursue stories that uh, have really helped take journalism to a, a lower level, I would submit to you. That, that's true, Adam. Uh, I listened very attentively to Rupert Murdoch's testimony before a parliamentary committee this week. I heard him talk of his father, a guy who didn't have much money but who exposed graft and corruption uh, early in the 20th century and who passed his fledgling newspaper business onto his son Rupert, turned it into a global empire now known as News Corp, and really the, the very issues that, that news international newspapers sought to expose every Sunday with the news of the world. Uh, tactics that uh, that really got turned on their head, that the news of the world was using the very tactics that, that they sought to uh, expose throughout its history, closed down suddenly, people out of work, uh, and a, an, a global empire that is much bigger than the newspapers of News International suddenly lay low when, when Rupert Murdoch and his son James are, are called before Parliament. 
Well, to be sure, there's a long family history there. A, a new generation was taking the, the reins there at News Corp and News International. But I think what's got people most upset is that the privacy and the in, intimacies of stories like the reporting around 9-11 uh, may have been peppered with uh, information that came illicitly from listening and tapping and hacking into people's voicemails, the kind of things that have really, I- I- on the British side of this story, Josh, uh, compounded uh, police efforts to solve missing people uh, and murder cases. And we're going to talk, Adam, this week to Sarah Lyle, uh, the U.K. correspondent for The New York Times, who over the past few months has obviously covered the highs of British news with the royal wedding of, of Kate uh, and, and Prince William, uh, the usual kind of stories that come out of London and the United Kingdom, and suddenly this story that has gripped page one of the New York Times for weeks. Indeed. Uh, Sarah Lyle, welcome to Polyoptics. Hi. What's the state of play, Sarah Lyle, on this story with the Murdochs and the phone tapping and the Inquisition coming from Parliament and uh, law enforcement. These folks are quite literally now in the crosshairs that they so often train on others, aren't they? Well, everybody's in the crosshairs. I mean, it's a scandal that's caught up, as you say, the Murdoch Empire. It's caught up the government of Prime Minister David Cameron. It's caught up the police. The top uh, police official has had to resign, and the the top anti-terrorism police officers had to resign. So it's touched on almost every aspect of society here. Sarah, it's Josh here in London with you. When you entered this spring in April, you were covering uh, Kate Middleton and Prince William's wedding. I mean, did you have any, how much, as the, New York, as the uh, U.K. correspondent for the New York Times, are you aware at, back in April of where the News International, News of the World story may go, and how much time is that taking of your time late April, early May, before this really metastasizes in July? Well, it's a story we, we have been interested in. Um, you know, the, the sort of chain of events is that The Guardian was the one who really started covering this in 2009. They came out with a huge report. Um, almost none of the media here followed through. I mean, the Murdoch Press certainly didn't. Some of the other papers did small things. And we kind of covered little dutiful things. Uh, then our New York office sent a team of investigative reporters here and, and did a big piece a year ago that actually broke new ground. So it was something we were covering and following. And then there was another breakthrough this December and January where the police suddenly said that this scandal that had been essentially limited to the pages of the newspapers was actually, there was some truth in it, and they made a couple of arrests. And the News of the World, which is the paper at the center of this um, fired a couple people, and it turned out there was evidence actually brewing through the courts that there had been more phone hacking than, than they'd originally admitted. So we were following that. And then, of course, Andy Colson, who was the government's chief spokesman, who was a former editor of the News of the World, resigned in January. He said he had done nothing wrong, but that all this stuff was d- distracting you know, attention from his job. And so, you know, things were sort of bubbling along, and it wasn't until, I guess, now two, two and a half weeks ago that The Guardian, you know, came out with this incredible uh, revelation, which is that not only had celebrities' phones been hacked into and politicians' phones and public figures' phones, but it also seemed to include the um, 
phone of a 12-year-old girl who had gone missing and then turned out to be a murder victim, it turned out that the News of the World was hacking into her phone and listening to her messages. And not only that, but when her messages got all filled up because people were trying, you know, calling and saying, if you're still out there, please come home, you know, where are you? They started erasing some of those messages so that they could then listen to more messages. And this possibly screwed up the police investigation. It certainly gave hope to her parents that she was still alive. And that's when everything went crazy. That's when, you know, the public started caring. It's when the government started caring. And when all these new revelations started really, you know, piling out one after the other, it's been crazy. Sarah Lyle, tell us for a second uh, uh, about the New York Times effort here. You all jumped in and have played an important role in pushing this story forward, but even for lay people who are beginning to just sort of tune in and understand this, how does phone hacking work? I mean, are you literally just trying to guess people's um, you know, passcodes to their voicemail, or is there something more sinister in behind the scenes about how they were achieving and penetrating people's uh, private messages? Well, they did it on an you know, industrial scale, and they had ends with with phone companies, which who would just reveal this, you know, PIN numbers and phone numbers. So they could essentially, and you know, it's called hacking, but it's not like hacking a website. It's essentially listening in. And what they were able to do is, you know, go into people's phones, listen to whatever messages were there, and and then exit. As and no one could, you know, you know, some people were suspicious that it was happening to them because they would hear messages that seem to have been listened to already, you know, when you don't hear the beep or whatever that says you've got new messages, and so it looked like someone had already listened to them. Some people were informed by the phone company that there was something weird happening, but it was just incredibly easy for them to do it, and it, you know, we're sort of hearing with the news of the world that it seems it was rare that a story went by involving a public figure that they didn't turn to this method of news gathering because it was so easy for them. It's almost like uh, Dick Cheney's uh, uh, fantasy world in terms of being able to to listen to dirty numbers or listen to phone <laughs> calls, and yet this is what's been going on. Uh, you know, that's intelligence gathering, but it's hard not to conflate intelligence gathering and news gathering because so many of the ta- of the tactics can be the same. Well, they shouldn't be. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, you know, decent intelligence gathering that doesn't have subterfuge or wiretaps or whatever. I guess you would need court you know, orders for, yeah, but a lot of news gathering is, you know, as you know, going out and asking questions, checking things, um, you know, pounding the pavement, looking at documents, that kind of thing. But, you know, most of the stories that they were getting were things like Sienna Miller had a fight with her boyfriend, Jude Law, and they would listen to a message that had been left on the phone, and then they could run a story saying, you know, friends of the couple said they're fighting over such and such, and they could even have a quote. And that, you know, that's the kind of thing they were doing. It wasn't, you know, fantastic finding, you know, big patterns of malfeasance in the police department. It was gossip, mostly. Well, gossip, but it was also untrue. I mean, how can you you, you take a quote from a, a voicemail, which is obviously could be accurate, although it was private, and attribute it to friends? I mean, people who were close to the story knew that there's no other way people could have uh, gathered this, and so they were uh, hip to it, if you will, but... You know, there's, but I think uh, often, there's no credibility. Often, sorry to interrupt, but I think often celebrities assume it's somebody who sold out, you know, like an assistant who oh. might have heard something, who, you know, sold the story for money. That's how they get a lot of stories. And actually in the tabloids here, quite often if a celebrity wants to refute something or, you know, 
um, try and put some spin on a story that's going to be in there anyway, but don't want to make it seem like they would stoop to talk to the reporter. They'll just say, please attribute it to friends. And they'll always say the actual celebrity. Sarah, here on uh, uh, Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124 uh, on the POTUS channel, you know, we, we try through our old-fashioned medium of radio and talk to paint a visual picture. And, and in previous weeks, I've often said that you know, the Daily Mail does a great job online of really giving us so much more real estate in photography and celebrity imagery in addition to whatever they manage to write about these stories. Uh, tell us sort of about your day as the New York Times, they used to say man in London, but now it's a <laughs> person in London in would London. be fine. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I, what about the difference between British consumption of uh, words slash pictures compared to the way an American consumes uh, news that, that makes this story, uh, if you hack a phone and have a quote from a hacked message, but add it with a full glossy picture, either in the broadsheet, on the tabloid, or online, gives it more legs than it might have just had if it was just pixels on a screen. Well, I think that's true of any newspaper, you know, who runs this sort of stuff. If there's pictures of celebrity, people are more happy to read the story. I mean, one thing in, interesting to note is that the Daily Mail website is a, one of the most viewed web news websites in, in the whole world, and that it doesn't necessarily represent what's in the paper. It has a lot more extra celebrity stuff. I mean, they really, really go big on the celebrity gossip. And the paper is a lot like that, too, but it'll have a lot of things that don't appear on the website. But, you know, the difference between news consumption here and in America is there's just a lot more papers. There's a lot more stuff at the newsstand vying for your attention, and it goes everywhere, you know, starting right at the bottom, which would be like the sun, which has a topless woman on page three every day, right up to the FT. There's, I think, seven um, daily national newspapers here. And most readers in America would only have a choice of maybe their local paper and maybe one national paper. But here they have a huge, huge choice. So you have a lot more competition. You have, in a way, fewer stories of interest because it's a much smaller country. So there's a lot of competition to get the reader. And a lot of, you know, the tabloids especially will try to track the reader through down-market stories. And it's affected all the newspapers because they have to kind of dumb down a little bit to, to join in that, that kind of competition. So bring us back then to sort of what brought you to the U.K. originally. Uh, you know, you're not only the, the U.K. reporter for the New York Times, you're the author of the Anglophiles, available on Amazon.com. So what brought Sarah Lyle from the United States of America to London, England, uh, and, and what's been your trajectory and in the, in the, the stories that you've really enjoyed covering since you've been over, over in London? Um, well, it's a it's a prosaic but happy reason I came. I met my now husband, who's English, and moved over here. And it was, a, you know, I didn't know I was going to be spending all this time here. I didn't know I'd essentially settle here, but I have. I've got we've got two kids who are English, but I'm very much an American. I feel like I'm very, very much on the outside of this society, which is good. If you're a reporter, you should be. Um, and this story is just interesting because it's it speaks so much to the way power is. Um, played out here you know then these these newspapers are hanging out with with uh politicians newspapers people are hanging out with with police officers 
And it's all this kind of little club, and that's what's just been fascinating is it's the layers of it are sort of peeling away. We're starting to see how these how these little groups of people were wielding this kind of power, and no one really could see inside until now. And it's just, you know, the story has so many things. It has criminals, it has sexual peccadilloes, it has corrupt police officers, it has sleazy criminal investigators, it has politicians with slightly sordid connections, it has people willfully not following the law, people pretending that they don't know that the law isn't being followed. You know, there's just a lot of good stuff going on all at once. And, you know, it's hard. What we need to do as reporters here is to try to see the the forest for the trees. There's an awful lot of trees coming our way, and we have to, you know, try really hard to step back and just look at it from a more holistic point of view. So I, Jill Abramson, go ahead. Uh. No, I was just going to say that... Uh, if if you're if you're listening to this broadcast and and you've just sort of uh, heard Josh uh, refer to Sarah Lyle's uh, book, The Anglophiles, you can you can find her on the web at, at sarahlyle.com, and you're going to want to pick up this book. Uh, besides being you know a, a really talented uh, journalist, uh, this is a woman with with uh, a great sense of humor, and uh, you know we we bring a lot of different personalities on polyoptics, but this is one you're going to want to dig into. And probably uh, follow us to our Facebook page, Polyoptics, uh, on Facebook and polyoptics.com. We'll give you a little bit more information. But, but Josh, continue the conversation. I'm fascinated. You two are in London. I'm sitting down here, as I said earlier in the show, at uh, the beachfront uh, headquarters of the M Network uh, in their studios. And uh, I'll tell you, I, I, I wish I knew more about what the next beat on this story was going to be, because my sense is, especially listening to Sarah talk about the uh, sexual picadillos and, and other elements that are bubbling up in this story, that where there's smoke, there's fire, and we probably haven't gotten to the chewy center of this Tootsie Pop yet. Well, you know, nothing's going to surprise me in this story. I keep telling my editor, oh, well, you know, we can relax. Tomorrow's going to be a quiet day. And then some massive thing happens, I mean, on Sunday... We got the news that Rebecca Brooks, who a former editor of the News of the World and one of Murdoch's great favorites in the company, who had become the chief executive of News International, which is all the Murdoch's um, newspaper properties in Britain, who had always been, you know, the golden girl in this. And it seemed almost like they had closed down the entire newspaper, the News of the World, just to save her job. So we get this news on Sunday. She actually quit on on Friday, but Sunday she was arrested, and she was, you know, accused. She was arrested on suspicion of hacking and bribing the police. So that was like I was, you know, reeling from that information, and I'm trying to write the story, and then at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, the police commissioner resigns because he's been implicated in all this. So it's like not just one thing happening, it's two or three huge things happening. And and at Polyoptics, it seems to Adam and me that this is such a, a luscious visual story because Rebecca Brooks has this incredible mane of red hair that when she's photographed or featured in video, you, it arrests your attention. When Rupert Murdoch and his son James are testifying before Parliament and a protester uh, assaults him with a pie of shaving cream and Wendy Deng Murdoch steps in and gives the the assault, the assaultant, a right hook. Can I mean, we talk about that for a second? That, that make this story, isn't it, isn't that right, Sarah? That was that um, was my favorite part of the story. I have to jump back in from Miami because 
when I watched that video, and you know, in the, in the United States, it just became immediate cable news fodder. It was on a loop. It wasn't what? really more than thirty seconds, and you know, you got your headlines of humble pie being served, et cetera. But uh, Murdoch's wife moved with such speed and lack of hesitation uh, to hit the uh, the fellow who was coming at her husband. It just showed you how tense and how real this is for everybody who's an actor and i can't wait until somebody tells me that they have uh you know bought the movie rights and i would not be surprised if murdoch tries to make this a 20th century fox film himself well i'm not sure he's very happy about the story he doesn't really like being at the center of tabloid attention but it was it was fascinating uh, theater in that in that hearing room the other day because you know you not only had Wendy Dang sitting behind her husband and she's thirty eight years younger than he is and very glamorous and there he is and he's looking you know he's eighty and he seemed every bit his age sitting next to his son James who's young and sharp and you know the interplay between them was fascinating and and the hand on the I, arm. Yeah, and Murdoch Sr. really seemed at times to be floundering. Like he didn't, you know, he was lost for words. He wasn't sort of hearing or concentrating properly. And there was a lot of theories going around that some of that was kind of put on, you know, like that old mob boss in New York who walked around in his uh, pajamas and pretended to be senile so the feds wouldn't get him. That actually Murdoch is a lot sharper than he came across. But, you know, if you look at it kind of straight without that added cynicism, you saw an old man being protected by his son who would jump in and try and finish, you know, what his father had said when his father was floundering for a response. And then you started seeing the father kind of interrupting his son and saying, you know, going a little bit off on different tangents and letting his true nature come out, which is a pretty combative, feisty, opinionated person who doesn't like to have to sit there and be humble. So that was all really interesting. Then you have this woman behind who's, you know, gorgeous and young and and, um, very protective of her husband, and she has a a background in volleyball, apparently, and it looked to me like she was doing like a volleyball spike on that guy. That was definitely a winning spike uh, into the guy's guy's right shot. Hey, Sarah, um, you know, you you just painted a picture that is not uh, unlike... um, Mario Puzo or Francis Ford Coppola in his uh, in his series of movies about The Godfather. Uh, you must have, from the Americans' perspective, looking at the story, uh, a longer form uh, narrative to to offer on this. And I just found it so fascinating that we hadn't seen a lot of the live Rupert Murdoch until a few weeks ago. Uh, we saw some pictures from Sun Valley, Idaho, from the Allen Conference, when the story was just beginning to break. And I looked at him and I said, boy, Rupert, where has his hair gone? Where, has his, where, has his year, where have his years gone? <laughs> and, and then these pictures of him flying to London, the pictures in the back of his car, uh, it, it sheds a whole new light on where the News Corp empire is going. So I'm wondering, in your conversations up through your editors and to Jill Abramson, what are you trying to pitch for the coming days and weeks and months as this story unfolds? Well, we can't really say what we're working on, but we have some good investigative stuff coming out. Um, and then I think, you know, now that Parliament has has um, left for the summer, so I think the momentum of the story might slow down a little bit. I don't think the police are necessarily going to make a ton more arrests. They might. You know, you never know. But I think we're going to see a lot of police stuff in the fall when some of this stuff gets further on through the process. 
so we'll probably it'll be a good time to take a step back and look at things like um, press regulation, which is one of the strands that's been teased out of all this, is that the parties are now saying this is a time to really start regulating this crazy press that we have here. And, you know, and just stories about the kind of interplay between the, the corridors of power, how it all is connected, is, you know, just so fascinating. Well, whether it is on our, our iPads on the New York Times app or on our front uh, porches when the morning paper gets delivered to us, we'll be looking for Sarah Lyle at the top of the fold on the top right, giving us the next great scoop on this story. Thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Well, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very, very much. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. We're joined now by John Harris, Editor-in-Chief of Politico, the nation's most important and most influential online publication, and certainly over the last two years, giving all the major U.S. newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, a very fast run for their money with a frequently expanding staff scooping news, and always right before the morning news breaks, a headline that refreshes and keeps people on their toes. John Harris, the editor-in-chief of Politico, is a guy that I first met when I worked for President Clinton back in the 90s, a dogged reporter who wrote the definitive biography of President Clinton, and then as most of the Clinton staff dispersed out of Washington, John shows up working with the Alibritton family to hatch what was then called The Politico, now just called Politico. He's editor-in-chief. He lords over the most important, I would say, news organization in Washington for its ability 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to break news in Washington. John, welcome to Polyoptics. Well, thank you very much, Josh, and thank you for uh, reading that exactly as I wrote it. I appreciate that. Great to have you here. Hey, John, you know, I'm looking at the front page of Politico today. Uh, How does what I'm looking at today differ from uh, the first day you guys were online And if you think of your coverage of the 2008 campaign as your baby steps into national politics, how will 2012 differ from 2008? Well, there's simply, if you look at our homepage today, there's just a lot more news on a lot more different subjects being produced by a lot more reporters. When we launched in January of 2007, our entire operation, the newsroom and our business side was about 50 people. Uh, It's now about 200 people uh, of those in the newsroom, roughly 130, 140 of those. So that's a very substantial news operation, certainly far bigger than we uh, could have envisioned when we uh, got launched. When we launched, there were a couple of subjects that remained core to us, uh, national campaigns, presidential campaigns, obviously, uh, and the Congress, obviously a uh, uh, a major subject for us. These days, we've got a major presence at the White House that we didn't have uh, when we first launched. There's all kinds of policy areas where we've got some of the best reporters covering uh, 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 topics like uh, health care, energy, technology, uh, the Justice Department. Um, So we're a much broader and deeper publication. Um, uh, But our essential mission, uh, which is to dominate a niche, uh, like that's been... uh, 
That's unchanged. And for us, the niche is is national politics and the workings of the uh, national government in Washington. You don't come to Politico for sports news. You can go to ESPN for sports news, or you don't really come to us for uh, uh, for weather or that kind of thing. You you go other places. That's where the really the big trend in media is uh, the era of broad-based general interest uh, news organizations. The sun seems to be setting on that. Uh, the, the, the publications that are really seem to have robust futures uh, are those that try to dominate a niche. And that's what we set out to do in politics. We sometimes describe ourselves as uh, aspiring to be the ESPN of politics. John, you worked for a guy at the Washington Post named Len Downey. And I don't want you to characterize Len personally, but the role of the editor-in-chief of a major Washington-based news organization uh, characterized the way that might have been in Ben Bradley's time, in Len Downey's time, and give our listeners a flavor of what it's like to be John Harris or Jim Vandehye on a 24-hour period in any typical news window in Washington. Well, the people that you mentioned, uh, Ben Bradley, of course, was the uh, executive editor of The Post uh, during the, the Watergate showdown, and for many years after that, considered one of the real legends of the business. Uh, Len Downey succeeded Ben Bradley uh, as executive editor of the Washington Post. Uh, Len, uh, in a, uh, a quieter, a less public way, was equally uh, uh, um, uh, a legend of journalism. Both those people are mentors of mine. Had lunch with Ben Bradley a month or so ago. Uh, uh, see Leonard Downey uh, uh, pretty frequently. Somebody I deeply, deeply admire. Ben and Len, we were uh, leading. Uh, the, their newsrooms in a, just a different era of journalism. What I uh, what I described a moment ago is a, this era of uh, niche journalism that we're in. Uh, that wasn't true when they were uh, building the Washington Post newsroom and leading it. Um, so we just have different sets of uh, of challenges. My essential responsibility as the leader of Politico, in some ways, is not different than what those. Uh, uh, two men had what you what a, a, a an editor in chief or an executive editor tries to do is uh, hire the absolute best journalist possible. It's to uh, come up with a larger vision for the news organization, make people uh, sure people understand that vision, and ultimately to be accountable for what we publish. Uh, that's how what we do at Politico is different than say some blogger uh, working. Uh, in the attic or the basement, uh, we're an edited publication. Ultimately, somebody's responsible for what we um, uh, what we publish. That 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 person is me, uh, and at the end of the day, our publisher, Robert Alburn. Hey, John, it's Adam Belmar. Uh, one of the things that uh, I love about Politico, you talk about dominating a niche, uh, is that you all have paid particular attention to the visual elements of communication, uh, the pictures. Uh, the coordinated and uh, very thoughtful use of messaging and imagery on the part of our political leaders is not something that's lost in a sea of words at Politico. Uh, you all are a very dynamic online publication that gives, uh, you know, certainly the tempo of the people you keep a run for their money because you keep pace with them. But you also give us a real detailed and sometimes very unique insight to the visuals. Is that a, a, a target for you? Is that something that's just born of uh, your appreciation of the political world? Is that something that, that you all really work on over there at Politico? Well, we've got a number of people 
here who have uh, something I don't have, which is a great uh, visual intuition. Um, what kind of uh, uh, images can best illustrate a story? And you're, I entirely agree that the right image can really uh, lend power uh, to the text uh, and can substantially increase the impact of a story. Uh, our photo editor is Michael Schwartz, uh, uh, who has a, a, a brilliant sense of the, the right image. We've got a number of very talented web producers who are always uh, um, uh, uh, looking for the right image to, to accompany a story. Uh, I view our site at any given time as a, a big buffet, and a reader is going to come and graze at the buffet depending on, on uh, what uh, his or her interest is. And uh, so those images are really a way of making the, the buffet that much more inviting. Oh, I, I agree with you. I mean, it, it is sort of a, a poo-poo platter of politics, if you will. But uh, even your reporters, uh, and Mike Allen sort of stands out. We've had him on this broadcast here on Polyoptics on POTUS, uh, Sirius XM 124. But we, what we find is that even in the writing that comes uh, in, in, the, in the newsletters, the blogs, and in, in, the, in the main pieces, we get a description of the environment where uh, certain political events are taking place how things are staged, and there's just an effort, it, it, it appears, that, that goes farther than what I read in a lot of places to bring people in and give them a really broad view at Politico that I don't enjoy in so many other publications. And I just wonder if that is something that, that uh, is a priority beyond just marketing your site, but just really feeding into a need on the part of your readers. Well, we're aware that the typical reader at Politico is not necessarily the typical reader at a general interest news site. Um, we welcome all readers, but the core, our core reader, the person for whom we fundamentally edit the site, is not somebody with a casual interest in politics. Uh, they're somebody with, uh, who shares, uh, to some degree, our obsessive interest in politics and, and the workings of Washington. Uh, and so in the text and in the images in the story selection, we're constantly thinking of that. The, the person who is a, a real junkie, what is that person looking for? Um, and, and how can we accommodate him or, uh, him or her? John, uh, early on I was, I was hoping uh, for a preview of 2012, and I'm not sure you know, how much of the kimono you want to pull back about technology or different approaches that you want to take to the next campaign and how many uh, reporters you're going to assign. But what, what is, the, is the political junkie in store for in the next cycle? Because whether from campaigns and the technologies and ideas that they deploy or from news organizations, we're always treated every, every four years to sort of new ways of looking at the political process. Yes, is this that's... something that's occupying a lot of your time? Um, well, it's something that... Uh... Our reporters think about in terms of what's going to be driving the campaign, and it's something we who uh, lead the newsroom think about in terms of how do we react and respond in a way to connect uh, with with our audience. Uh, I think you're quite right. Every campaign seems to bring some kind of innovation that merges technology and communication. That is, how do you uh, how do you reach an audience uh, with the right message, and how do you these days, not just to reach an audience, but I think the key is to engage an audience. So, you know, back uh, uh, to your first campaign, or I believe it must have been your first uh, presidential campaign, Josh, you know, at that time, 
uh, Larry King and using the cable talk show, that was a big innovation. It seems distant now, but at the time, it represented a big change. Uh, in uh, Jeff in Eller and going around the traditional media. Exactly so. Uh, in, in 2004, uh, it seems uh, quaint now, but you know, using email to build uh, communities uh, uh, that, that could be politically mobilized, that was considered an innovation. Obviously, 2008 was uh, when uh, uh, Facebook really started to be, uh, and, and similar social media tools uh, uh, were used so effectively by President Obama's campaign. I don't yet know uh, what the big innovation will be in 2012. It seems certain that there will be one. Take us back when to we a launched simpler... in 2007, uh, incidentally, um, uh, uh, Facebook was not a particularly uh, uh, on our minds. Um, at that time, uh, it wasn't even yet clear whether Facebook or MySpace uh, would be the dominant platform. It was starting to become clear that Facebook had the edge, but it was not. Uh, that was not so firmly established as it is now, with MySpace not even really in the game and Facebook becoming huge. Uh, uh, Twitter hadn't was uh, not yet in use when we launched in 2007. So it's just that gives a sense of uh, the velocity of change. Take us back to a simpler time, John, uh, to the 1990s or, or just after President Clinton left office. You had an opportunity to write what at this point still stands as the definitive biography of President Bill Clinton, the survivor. I'm not sure why there hasn't been more uh, authoritative academic history written about the, the president president clinton since then there were there was a moment that between you and me when i schlepped over to your apartment or your office at the german marshall fund a huge box of what was then known, what's still known as pool reports but then it was just printouts um you know in politico you don't publish a lot of long-form journalism and do you miss it and what and what are the things that you personally john harris or politico can do to to do more long form, or is that just not the, not the model? Um, I do think that uh, long form journalism is going to have uh, a revival of sorts. Uh, you're quite right that the first wave of innovation on the web has not uh, particularly um, put the emphasis on uh, long form journalism. To the, to the contrary, it's put the emphasis on speed, being first, and uh, presenting news in. Uh, 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 smaller and, and uh, more easily digested uh, nuggets. Um, and uh, I think one would be foolish to uh, uh, to n- just be entirely resistant to the changing demands of an audience and the, and the changing uh, the, the ways that uh, technology uh, has us consuming information. Uh, you have to be attuned to that. But I don't think that the uh, pendulum only swings in one direction. Uh, the... Uh, uh, emergence of iPads and other tablets has made it uh, much more attractive once again to read content in a more traditional form. Uh, I think uh, uh, the iPad is going to be the uh, revival of, of magazines because of the way that uh, text and images can be uh, merged together in a very visually appealing package. Just simply simply makes it uh, easier to read uh, if, a, a long if, piece than you would maybe uh, just on your on your computer. Or certainly, it's virtually impossible to read a long piece like that on your BlackBerry. I mean, if the iPad could truly be the the savior of long form and the return of great uh, political biography, of which you are the creator of one great one, I wonder if today's uh, characters, Barack Obama, John Boehner, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, create the same kind of color 
that you had to work with as a subject in Bill Clinton. And if you can compare the process of you sitting down and looking at that subject with, I would argue, sort of a more bland character of Barack Obama, how, how does then and now compare? Well, Barack Obama is a, uh, a cooler customer than Bill Clinton. There's no question about that. Uh, 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 Bill Clinton was a, a great personality, and uh, his uh, uh, presidency was a, a kind of an operatic tale uh, that was uh, full of ups and downs, as you well remember. Um, that said, every president is interesting in in uh, in his way. So far, only his. Uh, I think, in due course, we'll we'll be able to say his or her way. Um, and I will say that uh, many of the issues that were uh, preoccupying during Bill Clinton's presidency in the 1990s do seem, uh, relative to the problems we face today, comparatively small. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton's presidency was fascinating, but uh, it it did exist between two great struggles, the Cold War uh, preceding Bill Clinton uh, and the the struggles uh, over terrorism and and the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War that succeeded his presidency. So. Although I, you know, look at the headlines these days, and there's many things that represent kind of an echo of the Clinton years. Uh, Bill Clinton navigated a showdown versus Newt Gingrich, similar to the way Barack Obama is navigating a a, a showdown with uh, John Boehner. Uh, but to me, the stakes seem much larger these days. The numbers uh, that we're dealing with in terms of the, the deficits, vastly larger. The consequences of some of the decisions that we're uh, confronting overseas seem bigger than anything Bill Clinton had to deal with. So, so that's by way of saying that uh, Barack Ob- uh, Obama's biographers are going to have plenty of material to deal with, just as George W. Bush's have had. So if the stakes are that much larger, and maybe this is a good, a good question to sort of go out on, uh, talk to me about, and talk to Adam and I about what you think uh, the size of the weaponry is. I'm I'm amazed at Politico uh, and its use and its use and creation of a repository of what I always called in my White House role, you know, uh, pool footage, the kind of pictures of bilaterals uh, and one-on-one meetings that you saw maybe a little bit of uh, highlight with a network anchorman voiceover, but you never saw the full thing. Politico makes, uh, creates a great archive of this uh, with advertising, which I'm sure, which of course you sell. Uh, but w- how do you, what, what's your editorial approach toward the very slick and savvy and well-produced content that comes out of the White House, whether it's in West Wing Week or the photographs by Pete Souza, the White House photographer, and the, the natural tension between uh, government-produced content versus content that you go out and either uh, use uh, the, the wires that you subscribe to or that you create yourself? Well, it is a, a good question, and it's one I know that the people in the trenches in the, in the White House press room are dealing with all the time. We had a story in Politico, I think it may have just been this morning, I lose track, uh, about some of the professional photographers uh, getting upset at how much the Obama White House is controlling the image, not giving them uh, access to, uh, uh, to photo shoots that in, they argue in earlier presidencies they, uh, they would have taken the photo rather than relying on a, an official White House release. Uh, there's no question that I'd say each administration uh, becomes more sophisticated in learning how to control the image uh, across different technologies. Uh, and some of the people who work there day in, day out, quite worked up about it. I think I have the luxury uh, uh, as an editor 
maybe being somewhat removed from the the, the day in day out trench warfare uh, of the people in the White House uh, press gallery versus the the White House aides. I don't get that worked up about it. I believe that the content that journalists produce. Uh, that's the pencils writing the stories and the pho- the photographers uh, capturing the images, the the, the, the network professionals who, who um, uh, manage the cameras and the sound. I believe their work is always going to be indispensable. And the reason it's indispensable is that it's the only way uh, to, the audience demands it. It's the only way you're going to have uh, uh, genuinely revelatory information produced. So uh, uh, I don't get that uh, worked up by uh, White House efforts to spin the story uh, because the demand for professional journalists to tell an unspinned story is, uh, is going to always be there. Uh, they can't do the job better than we can do the job. Uh, and, and so uh, I think it's, uh, I, as I say, I just don't get as uh, uh, alarmed by it as, uh, uh, as I might if I was uh, well, there kind of navigating the, the frustrations on an hour-by-hour basis and, and crabbing and, and complaining and moaning, which is what you do as a White House reporter. That, that's what you have to do. Well, John Harris, from the early morning hours when I read uh, – Mike Allen and Ben White to the late night hours when your final stories are filed for the day. Uh, the work that you and your team are doing are creating, uh, are, are contributing immeasurably to the political discourse, and we thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics today. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's nice of you to say that, and it's nice to spend some time with, you, uh, with both of you guys. Thank you. POTUS. POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. Josh, one of the things that I love about polyoptics, this weekly discussion that we have, is the ability to uh, get outside of Washington in the Beltway. Uh, You usually are uh, bringing us to exotic locales, including this perch in London from, from whence you've come to us today. But for me, it's a first on polyoptics to be out of the studio in Washington with our producer Catherine Caperton and to be down here in Miami as I said uh, at the M network we're joined by uh, our good friend Tom Mosloom uh, the president and founder of the M network a uh, advertising agency here in South Florida Uh, but one of the things that's been really on the radar screen especially here in the United States but most uh, most certainly here in South Florida is the landing this week Josh of STS-135 the uh, final mission of the space shuttle program. That's right, Adam. I remember where I was for STS-1 in my parents' living room in Newton, Massachusetts, watching John Young and Robert Crippen blast into Earth orbit uh, aboard Columbia. And uh, I've followed the space program ever since, and I was a follower of the Apollo program and certainly an admirer through the reporting and and journalism of people like Tom Wolfe of the original Mercury 7 astronauts and the U.S. space program, program, and to watch the final mission come to a conclusion this week and wonder what is next in space for the United States. Any person who's grown of a certain age who's grown up and watching our progressively uh, exciting adventures in space has to wonder, has the United States and, frankly, the people of the Earth lost it in terms of their daring, their adventures, their adventurousness, and their ability to dream great dreams and look to to worlds beyond yeah tom Mosloom, you're a former network newsman uh as well uh this has been a visually stunning 
uh, representation of American prowess, not just in space, but leading technologically uh, across these four decades. What was going on in your head? What do you think uh, it pretends for America, this image of the shuttle just resting on its final return to Earth? Yeah, there's two things going on. There's the image and the reality. The image of it is, you know, tough economic times. The job loss rate is up. There's 9,000 people on the Space Coast now out of work. And uh, there's an unbelievable picture of probably the most amazing machine ever built by human hands sitting quietly going to a museum. Uh, that's not a really good picture, and, pe- and there's nothing to take its place. So from an image perspective, the fact that there's nothing to take its place kind of hurts. That's kind of one of those things that's not going to sit very well. The reality of the situation, though, is a little bit different. I mean, in reality, we haven't moved any further out into space. We haven't taken a man any further out into space since 1969. That's right. The Space Shuttle Program is an amazing technological feat, but we, as a species, are no further adventurers than we were after Armstrong, which is crazy. We built a space bus. We built some... We're, we're back in Mercury days. We're back in low Earth orbit. You're right. Uh, building a, uh, I don't know, a, a cobbled-together, multi-language, multinational space station, which I'm sure is useful... But it certainly takes the polish off to boldly go where no man has gone before. Let's be honest. I mean, we went from 1959 to 1969. We put a man on the moon. And in 30 years, we haven't gotten any further. That's just crazy. So, Tom, it begs the obvious question, given that you and Adam are in Miami today. I mean, what is our next great feat as a a people? Is it figuring out how to put uh, Americans or Earthlings back on Mars? Or are we going to have to resign ourselves to LeBron James and bringing his talents to South Beach and feats of sports? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, no, I think if you looked at the original intent of the Apollo program, it was to get to the moon so that you could colonize it. I mean, we were staking out new land. This was Columbus stuff. We're going there. We're going to plant a flag in the ground, literally, and say, this is ours. And then we'll use that as a stepping stone to planets elsewhere. And I think that's where we're going to have to go back to. You know, one of the things about the space program that I can never discount is how it captures the imagination of our youth. Um, I have I've been down there, uh, as I think we all have, uh, at Cape Canaveral. And, you know, it's not lost on me, as Tom and I were talking before this show, about the Saturn V rocket that we're now using once again to lift satellites back into space. Those things are absolutely jaw-dropping when you just see one. thundering awesome. Yeah, and they're just enormous. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing feat uh, of technological prowess. But there's something of promise and there's something of, of hopefulness and leadership that comes from uh, doing things that no one else on the planet can do. And I think that while uh, we have spent a great deal of money and, and arguably perhaps some of the, the science that was done was not as sexy as... Uh, a mission that would have taken us farther out of low Earth orbit than we've been doing, that this program needs uh, a new breath of life into it. President Obama and uh, President Bush uh, tried to set bold uh, goals for the American space program in a new generation. But you know what? You can't say Sputnik moment and catch the imagination of Americans anymore. It just doesn't work, Josh. 
Well, you can't, Adam. Uh, but I, again, I think back to my time in South Florida and where you and Tom are today, and I think of that gridlock on 95 between Miami and Palm Beach and uh, and how many beautiful uh, cloudless days there are down there. And, you know, let, let me be an optimist. Let me say that while we may never get beyond 160 miles above the Earth again for a long, long time, if we can get 10,000 feet above terra firma uh, with efficient flying machines for personal use that might take some of the strain off of our interstate highway system, might burn a little less fossil fuel, if we might figure out how to use technologies to, to work more wisely independently of office buildings, less use on air conditioning, well, maybe we can have some scientific miracles here at home that can make us as admiring of technology uh, today as we were back when, when John Glenn and, uh, uh, orbited the Earth for the first time. Tom Maslum, uh, you, you, you are really sort of plugged into this community um, at, at a number of levels, uh, friends with leadership in business, but also close with the Hispanic community. Uh, we talk and have been speaking about this uh, budget fight, uh, although not so much today, but Josh and I uh, have, have spent time on polyoptics talking about it. The national debt is not as compelling to Americans as their own debt. Uh, any final words uh, uh, from you about the perspective from down here in South Florida about what, what troubles are befalling our leadership in Washington? Yeah, what's missing in the rhetoric right now is actual solutions. The guy who steps out and says, listen, the U.S. government is the largest purchaser of goods and services on the planet. Sixty percent of all job creation comes from small businesses, yet that gigantic purchaser of goods and services only takes about 17 percent from small businesses. What we need to do to jumpstart small businesses and get our economy rolling and get jobs is fuel them through the money we're already spending. guy who comes out and says something like that or something much more clever than that is going to be a hero. And you're just not hearing that talk. You hear a lot of politics, debt ceiling. You hear all this garbage that nobody cares about. What people care about is their debt and their job. Solve that. Well, Josh King was talking about that, uh, you know, the, the turnover, the launch phase of some of these political campaigns. And, Josh, you made mention of, of leadership changes at the top, of Huntsman and others. Uh, struggling for that message is something that you've been a part of in your political career. It, it takes a lot of time, but it also means, you know, walking that walk once you've talked that talk, doesn't it, Josh? Yeah, and uh, interesting. I'm, I'm very curious for Tom's opinion. The last time... He was on our show, Adam. I asked him about uh, the so far uh, quiet uh, freshman senator from Florida, Marco Rubio. We learned this week that he's about to make his first uh, major speech outside of Florida, outside of Washington. He's going to go to the Reagan Presidential Library in August. And I'm curious, uh, Tom, we may not be looking at Marco Rubio as a major player, at least at the top of the ticket in 2012. But what are Floridians thinking about their junior senator these days? We're going to hate to see him leave the state when he gets tapped to be vice president. That's very hopeful of you, Tom. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you know, Rubio's going to make his first speech. And one of the things that struck me this week, and we weren't going to touch on this until you brought this up, Josh King, is uh, there's a, a really nasty little spat going on between uh, Congressman Alan West and uh, Debbie Wasserman Scholes. Uh, you know, these are two Floridians. She, the head of the Democratic National Committee, he, uh, a retired uh, Army colonel, um, and uh, 
And Congressman West called uh, Debbie Washman Scholes the most vile, unprofessional, and despicable member of the U.S. House of Representatives and not a lady, Tom. Well, I mean, at least he wasn't soft-pedaling his emotions. I mean, it wasn't politics at usual. He just came right out and said it. Now, she went all scorched earth on him as well. Her words weren't nearly as kind. And today's developments were, if you've been paying attention, uh, West came out and said, you know, I spent years fighting abroad for this country, and I don't intend to come home and be disrespected by here by a woman here in Congress. Josh, it is great to be talking to you uh, from London and for you always to be so committed to our conversations here on Polyoptics. Uh, thank you for, for bringing so much of what's going on in London to this discussion today. Always a pleasure, Adam. And, uh, you know, for me here in Miami with Tom Mazloom uh, at the Oceanside Studios of the M Network, uh, one of the most powerful messaging and branding agencies in South Florida. Polyoptics, as always, on Sirius XM 124, you're listening to POTUS, Politics of the United States. We will be back from Washington and New York next week on Polyoptics.